1852, and a dusty, covered wagon creaks along a dirt road, just past the town we now call Rancho Cordova, 39 miles east of Sacramento on the South Fork of the American River. The wagon isn't filled with settlers. It's not carrying beans, books, or whiskey. This is a remarkable wagon, though it won't stay remarkable for long. This is a wagon full of Shakespeare. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Mike Whitmore, the Folger's director. We call this podcast, The West Yet Glimmers with Some Streaks of Day. Gold was discovered in California in 1848. Within months, a flood of people poured into the state. Some came to find their fortunes mining. Others came to make a fortune off the miners themselves. People like saloon keepers, prostitutes, and from a very early time, actors and performers. When we think of Shakespeare in the American West, the mind immediately focuses on Hollywood. But as you'll hear, we can trace the history of Shakespeare's life on the American West Coast to long before then. At the time we recorded this podcast, the Library Foundation of Los Angeles had taken the Folger exhibition called America's Shakespeare, enhanced it with a wealth of new material from the West Coast, and retitled it America's Shakespeare, The Bard Goes West, following the quirks and turns of Shakespeare along the Pacific. Stephen Dickey, a senior lecturer in the English department at UCLA, is the exhibition's curator. He came into the studio recently to talk about it with Barbara Bogave. You know, Stephen, when I first heard about the exhibit, I thought of a quintessential Los Angeles Shakespeare connection, which is Shakespeare Beach. And for people listening, that's Hermosa Beach. They might have heard of that. That's what it's called now. But it was originally one of these early 20th century uh, real estate promotion ideas to call someplace a, a fictional, fanciful, gimmicky name and get mm-hmm. people to buy there. That's that's right, and it was uh, it was connected with the development of the early rail system, and, and people in charge of that decided to pitch an idea for a, a riders' colony, and they named all of the streets after um, actually mostly American riders like uh, Poe and Hawthorne and Longfellow, uh, but they called the the whole thing Shakespeare Beach, and there's some uh, we have in the exhibition uh, we have an, uh, one of the early blueprints of all the. Uh, perspective housing um, lots worked out. Uh, it's wonderful area. because it's so much a part of Los Angeles and of uh, California history. The the Disneyification of of the state and of the city, even before there was Disney, because we have we have a bunch of things like this. You know, there's a Hollywood Land, for instance, was mm-hmm. a real estate promotion. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. we have the Hollywood sign, but. The land part was taken down, but Hollywood land was this big real estate development, and and all of the uh, a lot of the houses were originally this this fairy tale castle mm-hmm. uh, type construction, storybook architecture. Story architecture. Yes, yeah, and Shakespeare fits right into that. Well, Shakespeare mode. fits in, and, and actually, one of my interests that I indulged here and there in this exhibition was uh, is just uh, is just the subject of allusion and and 
what what it means to allude specifically to Shakespeare because we we often are using his language without really knowing it. It's not a conscious allusion. But this was a very deliberate, yeah, salesman <laughs> move to kind of give uh, the uh, the inherited prestige, I guess, of the name Shakespeare to your real estate plan. Exactly. That was this, it was the same thing with Venice Beach and the Venice Canals, this mm-hmm. idea of, oh, culture, Europe. And yeah. as if we're always, the West was always longing for cultural legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare mm-hmm. seems to have played a big part in that. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And it does cover the chronological terrain between the 19th century, when Shakespeare is still what would be, I suppose, now called popular culture, and 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 then the progression or uh, limitation even of of Shakespeare to sort of the category of highbrow, and the ticket prices go up, and uh, it becomes uh, sort of segregated off in that way into the fancier theaters and so on. And uh, I, I want to get to that yeah. highbrow, lowbrow aspect mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. that thread throughout history and, and the West with Shakespeare. But let's go back to the beginning because I really I, – I didn't know a lot of this history with um, actors coming out West to California long before there were movies and that Shakespeare was a big impetus he for was, that. Yes, that's, that's right. Shakespeare made it West early, um, but he was certainly helped by gold. Uh, <laughs> the gold rush enticed one of uh, Junius Brutus Booth's sons, named Junius Brutus Booth Jr., to come to San Francisco. And San Francisco and Sacramento had very, um, very posh theaters, and young Booth told his father and younger brother Edwin Booth that they could make a lot of money if they came out and did their acting performances to these audiences. And so they did. And one of the areas we concentrate on is the maturing moment in the art of Edwin Booth, who comes out as a young man with his father in 1852. And they act in in, uh, not just Shakespeare, but a lot of Shakespeare together. In the mining camps. And this yeah. is immortalized. This Shakespeare in the mining towns is immortalized in, in a movie, My Darling Clementine. Yes. And we have a clip from that. Uh, My Darling Clementine is a, a wonderful retelling of the, not very accurate retelling no, of the shooting at accurate. the OK Corral. Right. And it was directed by John Ford with Henry Fonda and Victor Mature playing Doc Holliday. And here a Shakespearean actor is performing, standing on top of a table in a saloon. Shut up! Look, Yuri, can't you give us nothing but them poems? I have a very large repertoire, sir. Great! All right, York, go ahead. Show me. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against... It's a fascinating excerpt, and uh, we chose it because it does so many things that are relevant to the exhibition. For one thing, the actor who is supposed to be performing in the theater is a bit of a drunk and he wanders off and this seems to be a kind of allusion to Junius Brutus Booth Sr. who was uh, notorious for going on benders when he should have been on on stage. And one of of Edwin's jobs as as his uh, young son and assistant was really a kind of temperance officer. He had to try to keep him straight for um, performing. So, 
you have an actor who is uh, uh, not entirely um, sober at the moment, and he ends and that's up why in, he goes up on his so lines. He, so he yes, exactly, and he goes into a saloon, and he's he's facing an audience of the of the bad guys in the movie, the Clayton Gang, I think, and they call him Yorick uh, mockingly, and they want to hear something, and he does to be or not to be, but he falters in the middle of it, and at that point. Doc Holliday, played by Victor Mature, continues the speech. With a bare bodkin, who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? Life. Please help me, sir. But that's the dread of something after death. Would you carry on? I'm afraid it's been so long. The undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have and fly to others. And one of the things I think that scene is demonstrating is the notion that Doc Holliday is a kind of Hamlet in the film as a whole. He has a terminal tuberculosis. He, he's all brooding on death. He's a very melancholic kind of figure. And so you see that there is, there's not only an allusion to kind of Western performance, 19th century American West, but to Hamlet itself. And it's really rich. And Victor Mature, he is very evocative, very, yes. very, moving, very natural. Yeah. As Doc Holliday finishes reciting To Be or Not to Be, uh, Wyatt Earp, played by Henry Fonda, begins to look at him with a new kind of respect <laughs> and ama- and almost amazement, amazement right? right? Incredulity. How does this guy know this speech? And that's another interesting moment where it seems as though what you're being told is that the knowledge or familiarity with Shakespeare marks you off as a kind of socially polished or admirable figure. Well, tell us more about how what Shakespeare func- how it functioned in in the Gold Rush. Were they were the actors also, as you say, uh, chasing the money? The actors were chasing the money. In fact, the the big formative trip that Edwin Booth made to California was uh, from 1852 to 1856, and he was in California for almost three and a half of those years. But the time he was not in California, he had decided to uh, embark for Australia to see what fortune could be made there, because it turns out, I did not know this before working on the exhibition, but Australia had its own gold rush. And Edwin Booth went down to Australia in the company of an actress from England named Laura Keene, who re-enters American history, of course, by being on stage when John Wilkes Booth, the younger brother, assassinates Lincoln at Ford's Theater, and Laura Keene ends up uh, with Lincoln's martyred blood on her on her dress that that night. It's so entwined, you know. In my in my notes, I have a separate section about the Booths and a separate section about the Gold Rush, and now I realize you cannot separate them. You can't separate it. And the more I uh, read about uh, the Civil War era in general, the the more I'm inclined to believe there really were only about twenty five or thirty people involved in the whole thing. Because there's Robert E. Lee arresting John Brown at Harper's Ferry. There's General or not yet General Sherman. William Tecumseh Sherman, who is sitting in in his hotel balcony in San Francisco and remembering that he heard thunders of applause coming from the theater across the street 
for the young Edwin Booth. So these paths just keep Constantly crossing in cross. such fascinating ways. Yeah. Well, wow. well, so those were the actors. That was their motivation. What about the audience for these Gold Rush Shakespeareans? Apparently, the audience was very up on their Shakespeare, and many of the many of the members of the audience were not necessarily literate, but they had experienced Shakespeare. So these traveling traveling wagon Shakespeare troops, right? Right, and you have a, a beautiful photo. Oh, uh, that photograph is so wonderful. It's a little later than the Gold Rush era, but what it depicts is a, a, a wagon, horse drawn wagon, filled with what one assumes are actors, because on the side of the wagon is a huge banner advertising. Hamlet, as if that is to be the performance to to do that night. And what we loved about the the photograph was that if you think about the complexity of the play Hamlet and how it uses traveling a traveling actor, troop of actors, traveling right. troop of actors are coming to a small town to perform a play in which a traveling group of actors come to a court. Right, it's Russian are, dolls. It's, it's a mise en abîme beyond belief. And, it, and at no point do we claim Edwin Booth is hiding in the back of that wagon. But it represents a kind of the life of the actor, the, the tireless touring that they had to subject themselves to. And what were these performances like? Well... If you looked at playbills, and we have a number of playbills and broadsides from the 1850s and 1870s, uh, largely, again, from Northern California, you can see that Shakespeare, though the main attraction quite often, was not the only attraction. So kind of and like so vaudeville. Va- a more vaudevillian, show. yeah, as if you have a kind of 19th century remote control in your hand. I mean, you can't, you can't <laughs> quickly switch. You've got to wait for it. But you're, you're given a, a menu of entertainment options. So it, and, and there could be dances and other exhibitions of, of performing arts, one kind or another. Uh, but he's, by no means was he the only playwright being performed. There were there were some very popular 19th century melodramas that were either written in English or had been translated from French or or other other theaters, and um, uh, they would be part of the itinerary as well. I can only imagine they must have been a huge hit because you're a captive audience in a mining town. I mean, there's nothing to do there, and probably not a lot of books, or, exactly. or maybe you might not be able to read. Exactly so. It was the main offering for a kind of public entertainment there. I mean, and and this overlapped with saloon life, as Ford's My Darling Clementine suggests as well, because often the stage was set within a saloon or in the second floor of a hotel or something like that. But audiences would call for particular bits or, as in old audience etiquette with opera, say, you would bring it to a stop to have the star do that bit over again. Oh, great. So they take requests. They take requests. Uh. And the miners also, there's some evidence of this, knew their Shakespeare well enough that if the actor dried or forgot his lines or something, they would prompt the actor. And, and now we're back at this high-low-brow, high-low business with, with Shakespeare. And it makes me think that perhaps this audience and this moment in, in Shakespeare in the West is very similar to what the audience must have been like originally at the Globe Theater. I think that's a very good idea. And indeed, if you think of of Elizabethan Jacobean theater, there are the famous public theaters that we all know about, like the Globe. But lots of theater were uh, was was available in inn yards and and well, in London today you can see pub theater. So the the association of actors with that milieu is is still very strong. Which is so interesting because you have really the great men like Lincoln quoting Shakespeare mm-hmm. in speeches, but you also have miners in the gold rush camps. 
uh, reciting it or, or prompting actors. Or, or knowing it. And, and one of my areas of research recently has been to uh, – it's a little, a little peculiar. I'm reading a lot of uh, – documents from the Civil War era. And these could be political speeches. They could be letters home from soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. And they are shot through with usages of Shakespearean phrasing. Is there a moment that you can date that transition in which the the phrasing from Shakespeare becomes borrowed or becomes the kind of book learning high language of, of letter writing? Uh, there are a number of ways of, of pitting down a moment, I think. Uh, there is a book called Highbrow Lowbrow that attempts to, in fact, very precisely date the moment. And I think it makes a very plausible argument, but it locates it at really at the, not in the Gold Rush era, but a little bit after it, when the theater world becomes a little bit more stratified. Uh, big theaters are being built and they are by ticket price and by sort of social nuance beginning to place themselves at a certain level of class. Well, we've been talking about the Booth family, and one of the highlights of the exhibit is a 1890 wax cylinder recording of Edwin Booth, and he is performing as Othello. Act one, scene three. Let's listen. And therefore, little shall I grace Yet by your gracious patience, I will arouse and banish the of what drug, what charm, what conjurations, and what mighty magic for the my I It's hard to hear, but you do get a sense of, of the emotion he was able to pack into his performances. And also, his delivery is so musical. He was known for his melodious voice and... He was able clearly to to introduce a new kind of uh, a new style of acting, really, that was subtler. I think we would find and more naturalistic. And Othello was, as I said, Hamlet was his uh, the thing he was known most for. He did the famous One Hundred Nights Hamlet, um, and three weeks later, his uh, younger brother shot Lincoln. So that sent Edwin Booth into what he assumed, I think, might have been a permanent. Uh, retirement. And you said earlier, it's as almost as if there are only 25 people in this whole period. They keep on brushing up against each other. And it does make me wonder, you said that uh, Junius goes out west following the gold rush. And he says, there's a lot of money out here. Everybody yep. come follow me. If if John Wilkes had gone out there and stayed. Yeah. Well, yeah. Would the whole course of American history have been changed? Indeed, it would. That I, I think there are all those what-ifs, of course. I think what if Junius Brutus Booth did not decide to uh, have 10 children? John Wilkes Booth was was simply too young to make the trip. Well, we could probably talk about the Booths all uh, it, for hours. It would be easy to do. Uh, yeah. but, but I did want to ask you, why? do we know why he made that recording? Uh, I think there are a couple of reasons. One of the things he wanted to do was leave his voice with this newfangled technology of recording to his family but also because apparently someone else in the South was marketing a series of fraudulent recordings that were that he claimed were Edwin Booth's voice and were not. Ah, so but, he had something to prove. So he, he had, had to get to, it down on the he record. He wanted to corner the market on his own voice uh, and also put it out. So he, in a Chicago hotel room in 1890, evidently he records two passages from Shakespeare. One is from Hamlet, 
And I have not heard that, and apparently it is virtually inaudible. But Booth's family uh, transferred the sound of their wax cylinder to uh, an older kind of LP, the kind that feels like it's made out of cast iron, and donated this to the Cal State Northridge Special Collections. And so there is a Booth family collection there. Now, the Booth family had their home base back in Maryland, but there's another Shakespearean actor who's really important to California history, and her name is Helena Mojeska. Mojeska. Mojeska? Yes, right. Tell us who she was. Well, she was a very well-established and highly regarded Polish actress who did Shakespeare, mainly in German, which was the language she learned Shakespeare in, but also in Polish. In the 19th century, it was not unheard of to conceive of a utopian community. Uh, Mojeska and her husband purchased, well, they settled, they resettled in Anaheim, and they were looking for a place to set up their, their vision. Her husband and the people who came with them realized that not one of them could milk a cow or plant a crop successfully, and this was not going to. This I was, love this. This happened over and over again over in over California. Again. The yeah. people you would you would establish these uh, well, utopian in communes New England as well. and New England, yeah. right? And then yeah. turn out it turns out no one knows right. how to do anything. Well, They're I all th- artists. I think the secret is you. They on some level they must already intuitively know that if you're setting up a utopian community, you are literally nowhere. <laughs> so it's it's not going to happen. So the so the interesting aspect of it is. Um, what happens when, as you know it must, it doesn't work? And happily, in this case, the result is that Mojeska just had to go back to work. She was basically bankrolling it. Her husband seemed to not be contributing much in the way of finance to this. Um, so she went back to work. She worked very hard on improving her accent. Um, and she is very well known for Rosalind in As You Like It. Um, basically all the Shakespeare heroines, Cleopatra um, and uh, Ophelia. Um, so it's, I think she's it's all right here. fascinating because she brings together these strands that, that run throughout the history of the West, which is people going out on a spiritual quest mm-hmm. to the West. And we, we L.A. was just the recipient of hordes of mystics and hypnotists and mediums mm-hmm. and and every kind of scallywag and fraud you can imagine uh, often who put on performances and it, i and it's so interesting to me that she founded this utopian community again another strand in 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 western history but also these mediums when they would lead their their séances they would often channel shakespeare that was a, a hmm. I don't know if you ran into this, but they would often, because what do people know? They knew Shakespeare. So if you had to recite something and appear to be channeling something, you would, you would, they would come out with these Shakespearean soliloquies. That's very suggestive. I mean, in some ways, you know, the theater itself is a kind of seance. You're, you're conjuring up voices out of, out of nowhere, voices of of Channeling a character. Pulling, Mm -hmm. yes, yes. Inhabiting or letting the character inhabit you and... Um, so that, yeah, that's fascinating. But what, it was a revelation to me. I certainly was aware of her name and career, but her fame, uh, was extraordinary among Americans. She toured all over America, just as Booth did. And when she died in 1909, the first of many memorial services for her was held in Los Angeles, downtown at St. Vibiana's Cathedral. And the city 
apparently uh, more or less came to a standstill in oh. 1909, downtown L.A. And so she was part of the, as you say, she was part of the migration of Shakespeare into the U.S. It comes in waves and waves through all kinds of cultures as America opens up to all kinds of cultures. And we get movies. And we get movies. Movie adaptations of, of Shakespeare. And we have to, now it's time to bring us up to date to, uh, or at least to the origins, the beginnings of, of Hollywood and Shakespeare in the movies. And I want to focus on one of the two films that you mm-hmm. uh, you present in the exhibition, Warner Brothers' 1935 Midsummer Night's Dream, which was just legendary for, among other things, having a live performance that came before the movie and was staged at the Hollywood Bowl. Tell us about that. It just, it must have been amazing from what I see from the promotional film. It was part of, it went on the road. It went to a couple of venues in Northern California as part of a California festival. The director was a man named Max Reinhardt, who was Austrian, uh, and he performed it at the Hollywood Bowl in 1934. And there there are fascinating descriptions of his special effects in the staging, in the outdoor staging. And of course, you I mean, we when you see him in Summer Night's Dream outdoors, it's that is already magical. And the other thing uh, Reinhardt did was have this uh, legendary torch lit, as his son remarked, with no regard for the fire hazard of the dry hills all around, uh, torch lit parade of a, a cast of, uh, well, not thousands, but, but maybe It was the closest thing to a Cecil B. DeMille production you can like imagine. It, coming out down the hills behind into the bowl itself had been removed and, and everything had been replanted with trees. So you were in the forest outside of Athens itself. When you came out of the woods, all the actors came down, the torchlit parade of the fairies and everybody, all the way up. And people who were there can't stop talking about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I, you say that that, that your, your boss in the yes, library. Yes, Ken Brecker, the wonderful Ken Brecker, um, once talked. He didn't see it either, but he talked to a, a, an elderly stagehand or somebody who still worked at the Hollywood Bowl when Ken himself was about to direct something there. And he was regaled with with anecdotes about this performance. Well, let's play a bit from the promotional reel for the film, which which doesn't give you the, a sense of the magic so much, but definitely of the the public relations uh, struggle. And this features just a bit of the Hollywood Bowl production. What started all this? Why this excitement? Let's go back a year or so and find out. This is the famous Hollywood Bowl where Max Reinhardt, the international theatrical genius, startled motion picture producers with his stage presentation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. So successful was this engagement that Warner Brothers immediately signed Professor Reinhardt to produce and direct A Midsummer Night's Dream for the screen. Then followed months of amazing activity, the likes of which Hollywood had never before experienced. So how did the movie come out of the Hollywood Bowl? extravaganza? That's a, that's a good question, and I, the larger context involves the precarious position at that point of Shakespeare in the film industry. And this is the, is Shakespeare box office gold or box office or, or lead? <laughs> are you going to shoot at him or are you going to reward him with gold? Clearly in the silent film era, uh, we know Shakespeare was a popular subject. The talky era begins in the late 20s, and The Taming of the Shrew, which was uh, a, a rather well-known early fil- early attempt to film Shakespeare 
was also released in the silent format. This is at that moment, 27, 28, I think, when theaters, some are prepared to show you uh, just the pictures, uh, the picture show, and some are prepared to give you the sound as well. And so it's released right, in this transitional two area, formats. Area. Exactly so. And uh, it's, I, I think the consensus now is that the, that the Taming of the Shrew did not, in fact, do that well, although now it's sort of beloved by film historians and Right, this is the Douglas scholars. Fairbanks, Fairbanks and Mary, Mary Pickford. Pickford. Exactly. And there's some, there's some great post-striking in it here and there. So it was a bit of a gamble from an economic standpoint for the studios to try Shakespeare again. On the other hand, and here's where the highbrow-lowbrow comes in to play, this is also the moment where the production code is asserting its power, is, um, and when Hollywood has a reputation mainly for just licentiousness and uh, scurrility, and so the production code weighs in, and it suddenly seems that Shakespeare could be appealing to the studios as a way of proving their their bona fide interest in elevating the medium of film itself by showing uh, the work of this artist. Again, that cultural legitimacy. Cultural issue. legitimacy. And then you get Max Reinhardt, who is a very, very well-regarded director. And Max Reinhardt gets all of the music of Mendelssohn's uh, incidental music from Midsummer Night's Dream. And you get um, ballet from uh, Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. And you get you put all the arts in their in their sort of highest brow. But Part, they were still a little worried about whether worried. this is going to fly or very not, worried. whether audience will take to it, hence the need for this big promotional film. And right. and let's play another another clip from that PR film and this features Max Reinhardt, the director, and he's he's working on staging scenes on on a miniature set. Before Reinhardt directs a difficult scene, he outlines every move of the players on a miniature of the set in which the action takes place. With him is William Dieterle, who directed the picture with Mr. Reinhardt. The great director then instructs the actors in the reading of the lines and the mood of the scene. Satisfied that everything is letter perfect, he returns to his seat beneath the camera and the scene is shot. You know, I was watching this and the whole time I kept waiting for some Shakespeare. Ah. <laughs> and there's You're nothing. You're still waiting, aren't you? <laughs> That's right. There's nothing. And were, were they, were, were the, 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 was Warner Brothers afraid that people would just be put off by uh, iambic pentameter? I think they might have been. Or uh, I don't think they needed to be, but I think they were, in fact. In some of the promotional materials, not in the promo film, but in some of the materials we feature, uh, there is an exhortation to uh, local towns and municipalities who are going to be showing the film to try to tie it in with schools and museums. I think there was some some worry about it. The, I think my favorite uh, object in the exhibition from the film is a very uh, fancy relief a medallioned invitation to the to the premiere, which that promo is showing the footage of, in fact. And there are um, some heads posed in this uh, metallic relief across the top of the case that is containing the invitation. On the left is William Shakespeare, the author, and on the right is is Max Reinhardt. I think I've got that right. And in the middle, in pride of place, upstaging both of the both the playwright and the director, right. are the three Warner Brothers <laughs> yeah. in profile. They bang, get bang, top bang, billing. bang, bang, bang. They're right there. <laughs> Um, so it's it's promotional. It certainly is. It is. Um, it I think it re- it rewards um, 
watching or rewatching. But the story of Shakespeare in the West isn't just about Hollywood. And it's interesting to look at what the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is doing, commissioning these some 36 playwrights to translate Shakespeare. Many parts of the Shakespeare world not happy with this, regardless of whether this is a good thing for Shakespeare. Just take that out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Does that speak to the themes of the Bard Goes West, that that a, a West Coast festival would feel freed to, to, to do this? I guess it does in a way. It's another sort of declaration of independence, I suppose. Culturally, you're saying you're no longer umbilically tied to the first folio or the courthouse hose or something. Uh, it's definitely a movement out of an age of enormous respect that... Uh, we have had for Shakespeare's text and for original practices. Uh, I don't think Ashland needs to be the, the one to do this. They can do it on stage with their resettings of the original text in various eras and periods and so forth. Uh, and they do that quite successfully. And certainly it's been done and done and done. And so maybe done. my theory doesn't hold up, that well, it's not really tied to geography? I, I, think, I, I don't think it's tied to geography. I think it's tied to, uh, to time more than space. Um, and maybe this is just the next wave of innovation in thinking about, A, how to, st how, how to stage or what to put on stage under the name of Shakespeare, and perhaps be a, a kind of feeling that of surrender to the sense that the plays themselves are dated and we need to update them somehow or make them more accessible uh, linguistically. That is something you run into in various forms, certainly in my profession. I think it's so telling that the exhibit ends with the newer iterations of or film adaptations of Shakespeare, but doesn't come up to the modern day because we're in a global age of, of Shakespeare where I can watch a simulcast of the Royal Shakespeare Company's performance. Yes. I, can, I can go to my local theater and see a live Shakespeare performance from London. Yes. And there, there, there's no bringing Shakespeare, the bard goes west, up to the present moment. I think that's right. I mean, anyway, he's always somehow ahead of us. <laughs> We're still exploring the, the, uh, the riches. Well, we will talk to you in 75 years, say? Why not? For your next <laughs> exhibit. <laughs> Stephen Dickey, it was just such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for the, for the exhibit. You're welcome. Stephen Dickey, a senior lecturer in the English department at UCLA, is co-curator, along with the Folgers' Georgiana Ziegler, of America's Shakespeare, The Bard Goes West, a Folger exhibition with the Library Foundation of Los Angeles that ran at the Los Angeles Public Library from November 17, 2016 to February 26, 2017. Stephen was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. The West Yet Glimmers with Some Streaks of Day was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had technical help from Brian Allison and Jeff Peters at the Marketplace Studios in Los Angeles. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.